Hi, I'm Wendy Francis, nutrition therapist, emotional eating expert, and entrepreneur. I've helped countless people overcome their obsession with food and weight. Isn't it time you overcame what you had become and ignite who you were meant to be? Your time to become an overcomer starts now. Hi, and welcome to this edition of Overcoming Your Emotional Eating, the podcast. Today in this episode, I'm going to talk about emotions and food addiction and the interrelationship between the two. Take a listen and keep on overcoming. Hi, everyone. It's Wendy. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Um, As you know, tonight, today, I'm not on live, but I will be back again live. It actually worked out perfectly, however, for this food, weight, and life transformation call because I am going to be covering a topic in the month of April that I find so, so intriguing. In fact, it's been my area of specialty almost my, well, realistically, my entire career. And I love this topic so much that I wanted to just start it off with some real uh, thoughts so to speak, from me about my research, my experience, what I know, um, and some of the newest scientific evidence. And then as we go through the month, I'm going to try and keep it as light as possible, but talking about and understanding food addiction is not necessarily a light topic, but I will try and liven it up and lighten it up a little bit for you. Um, But it's so important to me to bring you the best information on this because it is my area of specialty. And it's also more so a desire of mine to bring to you all because I am told at least three to five times a week by our clients here at IHC, by people that I know, whether they be friends or colleagues or coworkers or my individual private practice clients, about asking me a question about, am I a food addict? Can I be a food addict? What is a food addict? My friend said I'm a food addict. My husband said I'm a food addict. I'm addicted to food. I can't deal without it. And I hear this over and over again, and I've heard it over and over again for 23 years of my career. And I'm helping people understand the newest research around this and also what I found to help people is so important to me because it is one of my life's passions and work. As I mentioned, I've worked in this field for the last 23 years with eating disorders. It's where I began my private practice was in eating disorder work um, and in cross addiction. And it's probably where I'll, I'll end my practice. As you know, it. I work at IHC, I designed this plan and there's multiple reasons why we have the foods that we have in our meal plan and the supplements that we have, you know, and I bring the emotional component to help with the emotional elements of things and knowing that eating disorder uh, addiction and cross addiction are all interlinked in an emotional realm, as well as what we know now, a physiological realm and a biochemical realm. But before I get into that, what I want you to hear and understand is even if in these next few conversations that we have around food addiction, even if you see yourself blatantly, even if it feels like you're staring right into a mirror, even if somebody's told you you're a food addict, I am going 
to make sure that you please do not label yourself or anyone else for that matter as an addict. It is extremely important to me that people do not walk around this country and label themselves as any diagnosis. There are many, many reasons why I feel so passionate about this. I do feel like diagnosing yourself or diagnosing someone else with anything and putting a label on you, yourself or your counterparts is disempowering to you and or them. I don't believe in diagnosis, even for my clients, who were severely, you know, restrictive in their food intake uh, or severely overeaters or, you know, binged radically um, in what they consumed during an eating episode, I never, ever labeled them. And I want to impress upon you to not do that either. Labels like binge, you know, that I'm a, that I'm a bulimic or an anorexic or I'm a compulsive overeater. Those labels do not empower you. They don't allow you to see yourself different and they stick you in a box. So when it comes to addiction or food addiction, I really believe that people should not be ever placing that label on them. Labels increase your shame. They decrease your self-esteem and they increase your fear. It also, I believe, disenables people from taking responsibility for their actions. If you've ever talked to someone who has an alcohol problem or a drug problem, even for them saying, you know, well, I'm just an addict, I can't stop myself. I don't believe that. I believe there's a choice. Is it more difficult to make those choices when you have a biochemical physiological, genetic component, absolutely. And when you hear what I have to say about food addiction, you'll see that people who actually have an addictive gene may have more of a difficult time saying no to certain foods, but there's still a choice. Even for my clients who had severe restrictive intake patterns and severe anorexia, there was a choice to eat or not eat. Now, were they locked down emotionally? Was their biochemistry shifted? Was their physiology shifted? Absolutely. Was it harder for them to make the choice to eat? Is it harder for them to make the choice to eat? Absolutely. But there's ways that you can start to work with that part of your brain that wants to make movement. So I want you to hear that eating is still a choice. Even if you have the same characteristics as what I'm going to talk about with addiction or food addiction, it's still your choice to eat those foods or not eat those foods. It's still your choice to continue to eat them or to not continue to eat them. So I just want to impart that upon you. I want these talks to empower people and not to disempower them. You are not your food and you never will be. And if you have a food addiction or you have a predisposition to having a food addiction, you don't have to continue to eat like that. So when we talk about food addiction, the reality is, you know, if we talk about food addiction for a moment, it is different than alcohol or drugs. And why is it different? Well, here's the big difference. What people know and understand is that they do not uh, have to, they don't have to drink alcohol daily. They don't have to take drugs daily. All they have to do is when a drug addict or an alcoholic, that doesn't have to be a part of their regimen. The main difference when you have a problem with food 
that food has to be a part of your regimen. And that's why it's even more essential to figure out your component or your issue with foods, whether it be emotional, physiological, biochemical, etc. In particular, in speaking about food addiction tonight. So I wanted to just read something, a testimonial from someone um, that I actually got out of a book. It's not a, it's not a person that I know or have worked with, but she's publicly acknowledged this. So just wanted to read that to you. And this, she labels herself just for Judy. She says, my addiction to ice cream and other sweets began in childhood. Celebrations were made with half pints of hand pack ice cream of choice, which became an addiction to relieve grief, stress, and other emotions. Because after all, life is good with ice cream. While I've been eating mostly healthy for nine years now, I still cannot have ice cream type things in my home. Still a binge food. Why having it available sets me off. I have no idea. And this, these are things that I've heard from clients for years and years and years. And so when we look at things like this, this is where people will start to then begin to label themselves with that I'm, I'm a food addict. And first and foremost, as I mentioned, please don't label yourself. Secondarily, when people come to me and they tell me those things, the number one thing I want you to start to do is identify which foods you have problems with. Now, for her, she identified ice cream, right? So when I hear someone have, you know, I'm a food addict, I can't eat sugar, well, I'll say to them, is that cane sugar? Is it raw sugar? Is it, is it sugar in desserts? Is it sugar in ice cream? What type of sugar is it and what format does it have to come in? Because what we know is that there is a dopamine piece for some people with specific types of foods. Dopamine, D-O-P-A-M-I-N-E, is a brain chemical that relieves anxiety. It helps to calm the system. I went to a seminar about 15 years ago now when all this research was breaking on dopamine. It was on obesity treatment. It was held at a bariatrician's conference. And I thought I'd walk in and get nothing out of it. It was, the mo- it, was, it, it was a life-changing experience for me. It put on lots of light bulbs. It was actually done by one of the founders of all of this dopamine research that was just on the cutting edge at that point. And I was so grateful to walk in that room. What they started to be- talk about was this, the research that had been done on dopamine and what they were finding for people who were overeating and who were overweight. And that's this interrelationship with dopamine. Here's what dopamine does. Dopamines are not our feel-good brain chemical. Our feel-good brain chemical is serotonin. Dopamine helps calm us down, helps relieve anxiety. In our society of go, 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 fast paced world, we know that there's an increase in cortisol from stress. And the more we have cortisol around us and the more we have stress around us, the more we need cortisol release and cortisol relief. Well, what comes to the rescue? Dopamine. Dopamine relieves stress. Now, as humans, we all want to feel good. So if that means eating a food that helps us feel good and elicits dopamine, I'm sure we do it. Now, there's other things that elicit dopamine. But what we found about 15 years ago, researchers found about 15 years ago now, is that certain foods 
in certain ways elicit dopamine. Ooey, gooey, sweet, chewy foods. Sound familiar? They release dopamine. Things like pizza with cheese, warm pizza with cheese, hot fudge sundaes, ooey, gooey, chewy. Those foods, sweet and or salty, or a combination of both, are what we know elicit dopamine and calm stress. We know there's other things that elicit dopamine, but they're not food-related. Now, if a person's brain starts to get used to, though, feeling stressed, having this surgence of, you know, anxiety and cortisol and catecholamines and acetylcholine in the brain, it's going to try to figure out how to fix it. And what it's going to do is do what works. If food has worked for you in the past to calm you down, it will do it again by creating some cravings for that. If you have other ways to alleviate or relieve your stress, reduce your cortisol levels, you might have a choice between getting a hot fudge sundae and if you happen to like to go running, well, you might go, oh, I either feel like I want to go on a run or I want to have a hot fudge sundae, which sounds converse to each other, but I just want you to hear from the brain's point of view. It doesn't see any different. It just wants to get that dopamine kicking and firing again. We know that anything that we're passionate about increases dopamine. So if we garden, if we swim, if we run, if we meditate, if we hike, it doesn't even have to be anything physical, but if you love it and you're passionate about it, it will elicit dopamine. In this study that I went into, uh, the research findings on 15 years ago, the woman had lost, I think it was 150 pounds. And what they did for her simply was on understanding this dopamine connection that research had just come out on is they helped her identify what dopamine was, what foods for her kicked up her dopamine. They helped her learn how to manage her cortisol levels better by giving her some stress-relieving activities like meditation and yoga. They put her on a strict regimen of that. They kept her away from the foods that elicited dopamine for her, and they found a passion of hers. Because remember I said, things that you're passionate about elicit dopamine. So for her, it was actually grooming horses. She loved to groom horses when she was younger. She hadn't been on one in years and years and years. And they got her back in the stables and back grooming a horse. And wouldn't you know it, between those three things, this woman lost 150 pounds in, I think it was eight to 10 months, and felt much better and had great emotional control and felt great. It was amazing. She actually stood up at the end and talked about her situation, her scenario. So in speaking of food addiction, dopamine, dopamine receptor sites, and eliciting dopamine from foods can become something that you get used to and want. In fact, research by, I believe it's a Dr. Volkow, is, uh, who's done a ton of research since 2001, she actually has shown since 2001, how dopamine receptor sites can decrease in the brain as you give the brain more of this food, you get less receptor sites. What that means is you actually then need more of the food to make you feel the same calm, stress-relieving effect that it did before. And that's how the intensity can increase. 
So you may not be a food addict, but your brain might have a dopamine piece to it where you haven't learned to manage your stress levels or you don't know how to do that anymore. You overproduce cortisol and that dopamine in your brain, you're, you're used to that alleviating the stress and you're used to getting that dopamine from the food. Follow? Secondarily, another thing that's come out, uh, and this is more so, gosh, in the last five to eight years, is this concept of epigenetics. Epigenetics is uh, defined as being around genetics. And what we found is that people with an addiction gene, so if their parents were alcoholic, if their parents were drug addicts, um, they have an addiction gene. We do know that that's there. Now, that addiction gene can elicit people to have a different response to specific foods. What we actually know is high fructose corn syrup uh, has been proven to actually kind of sit with this addiction gene. So people who have the addiction gene are much more likely to become physically addicted to high fructose corn syrup. So when people come into my office and they'll say, I'm a food addict, I'm addicted to sugar. And I'll say, are you addicted to sugar? What kind of sugar? Remember I asked for the specifics before in the beginning of the podcast. Or is it high fructose corn syrup? There is some amazing research about high fructose corn syrup. And, you know, what we know, and I'll be bringing some of that to some of the later uh, calls around this topic, but what you need to know is that our body getting linked to that synthetic substance of high fructose corn syrup can actually pull you into what feels like that addiction cycle. So, you know, if you are, um, and there's some other foods in that that I'll bring to some later calls, but I just wanted to let you know about that. There is a Yale researcher named Ashley Gearhart, and she actually likens the evolution of food availability and calorie concentration to the history of cocaine, which I found pretty interesting. We, we've kind of, you know, likened uh, the addiction of cocaine to, to this food piece. And, and here's how she does it, um, which I find interesting. So cocaine came over um, and we kind of in the 80s became very innovative with cocaine, and not me in particular, <laughs> but just the genre in general. And, you know, titrated it down, titrated down to create crack cocaine, um, which became an epidemic, obviously, in the late 1980s. Now, Gerhardt says, this researcher from Yale, you know, if you take something like corn, corn on the cob has always been a staple in the American diet, right? But in the 1970s, actually, we developed hypertrophic corn syrup, I believe, in the late 60s, but started to put it into food in the 70s. We created hypertrophic corn syrup, which is a cheap, highly concentrated, easily transportable source of sweetness. And we put it into a lot of our foods, hundreds and thousands of foods, because it was less expensive, more processed, and would allow the foods to maintain their shelf stability longer. The results from 1980 to 2009, our consumption of added sweeteners to foods rose 40%. The intake of high fructose corn syrup has risen from zero to 13.2 teaspoons a day. And we know precisely that high fructose corn syrup is 
specifically sitting on that addiction gene and can trigger a person who's got an addiction gene. So there's a lot of interlinkings there with epigenetics and the components and composition of food. There's a lot of why we do the meal plan that we do and we take out a lot of those things so that we can get your body clean, stable again, so that you can then begin eating those foods again to see what affects you and what does it. So when we talk about food addiction, it's very complicated and interlinked. But I wanted you to begin to at least hear some of the things that I've heard and understand more about them. There are some excellent YouTube videos on food addiction. I would encourage you if you're going to go on this journey for the next month, if you consider or you think you have a food addiction or, or without labeling you, right, if you think you have a problem with certain foods and you're not able to eat them in small quantities, I encourage you to go on this journey with me as we discover and uncover more about this and I can bring this to you. And in part, to start tonight, what I'd like for you to do is to make a list of the foods that you have a hard time eating one or two of or keeping in a contained portion. If you can't do that with certain foods, start to make that list. Don't over-diagnose, don't over-label, bring it to the specifics. And as we talk through on our next three calls, I'll be bringing you more research and more specifics, talking more next week about the addiction cycle the brain chemistry changes, why a physiological detox and emotional change can help, and we'll move forward from there. So for tonight, thank you, and for today, if you're listening to this during the day, thank you so much for taking this time out to listen to this podcast. wanted to bring you some thought-provoking things on food addiction and what the new research is out there, and I'm excited, so, so excited. So please join me this month so that I can help answer these questions and help clear up anything that you have around this component of your food and eating. For tonight, have a wonderful night. Hopefully it's gotten a lot, lot warmer. And I look forward to being live with you again next week. Take good care. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. Rate, review, and subscribe. You never know who you'll help become the next overcomer.